please take out your Bibles and open them to Exodus 25. Take out your Bibles and open them to Exodus 25. And let me just encourage you with something. If you're like me, this morning, I'm distracted. I got things on my mind I got that distract me. I'm already thinking about lunch and past lunch, and we have the nursing home thing this afternoon, and then I've got the discipleship group with some guys later this evening. And, and, I, like, and you know, my mind is already out into Monday and into Tuesday. But look, you're trapped here for the next 45 minutes or so, so you may as well relax. Ask the Spirit of God to work in your heart, and let's look into the Word of God together. So I'm going to give you 30 seconds for you to ask God to help you Pay attention. On your market set, go. Father, I do pray that you would use your word in our hearts this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Exodus chapter 25. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution, an offering. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution. This is a free will offering. It's not forced. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, Acacia wood. Can you imagine if we had offering like this, right? You guys put paper into a plate that comes by, right? Can you imagine like people are walking in with goat skins and fine twined linen, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastplate. Watch, look at verse eight. It's one of the most important verses we're going to look at this morning. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so, so you shall make it. And verse 10 begins another one of the parts of the Bible where when you're doing your read through the Bible every year, you go, Oh, goodness. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits. I got no idea what a cubit is. I, I, I do, but I'm just pretending like when we get to like two cubits. And, and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it, and you shall put into the ark the t uh, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. 
two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end, one of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be, and you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There, verse 22, the second verse that is of extreme importance for us this morning. There I will meet with you, And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. You can learn a lot about someone by going in their home. You you can learn a ton about someone from going in their home. And different kinds of home homes tell us different sorts of things. I've had the privilege of going to Asheville, North Carolina, and going into the Biltmore Estates. How many of you have been to the Biltmore? Yep, okay, there's a handful of you. Pretty swanky place, right? I mean, one of the things that you learn when you walk into the Biltmore, built by the Vanderbilt family. It's this enormous mansion, this stone mansion built on these beautiful, sprawling, rolling hills, estates, and there's gardens, and there's, you know, I mean, but there's literally this enormous mansion, and you walk in, and you, the first thing you realize is, this guy's got more money than I do. Uh, Like, I mean, way more, way more money than I do. And you walk through the different rooms and you learn what's important to the Vanderbilt family. They had an indoor bowling alley. At the time, that was unusual. I think it's relatively unusual even today. Anybody indoor bowling alley at your home? No? Okay. Indoor swimming pool. And this is built 100 plus years ago. Indoor swimming pools, anybody? We have a bathtub, which I think is different. I don't think that gets to count as an indoor, um, as an indoor, like we could fill this thing up and the kids could get in it after church and it still doesn't put us at the level of the Biltmore family. When you go into that home, you learn some things about the people who own that home. And when I go into your home or you come into my home, you learn things about me. And in this passage, in chapter 25 and really through the rest of the book of Exodus, chapter 25 through chapter 40, God is giving some blueprints for the home that he wants the people of Israel to build for him. Now, some of you may be very familiar with the Bible, and you're very familiar with this story in the Old Testament, um, and you know exactly what's going on, and you could teach this lesson just as well as I could. But there may be others of you who may not be as familiar with the book of Exodus or with the story of the Bible or with this Old Testament account. And so let me remind you that God has saved his people, has rescued the nation of Israel out of the land of Egypt. He's delivered them, and now they are in the wilderness, and he's bringing them to the promised land, but they aren't there yet. And on their way, God says, I want you to build, I want you to build a place for me to come and and reside with you, and I'm going to give you a lot of instructions. Some very sp- He doesn't just say, build a place for me to hang out. He says, here's exactly 
how I want you to build my home. Now, some of you have had the opportunity to build a home for yourself before, right? And, and I imagine that that's a really fun thing, especially if you get to do the blueprint, if you get to lay the thing out the way you want it, right? And you have, and you sit down with a builder, an architect, and you lay down the floor plan, and here's where I want, you know, this, and here's where I want that, and um, and you get things laid out just the right way you want it. Here's where I want my gun safe, and here's where I can put all my taxidermy, right? You, you work all that out because there are things about yourself that you are expressing in the way that you're building a home. And brothers and sisters, my hope, my desire, my prayer this morning is that God will use this sermon to help you see for the rest of your life that the tabernacle is not some random religious building that God just kind of needed a spot. And so, hey, you guys throw something together for me. Use this archaic measurement called a cubit, and we'll uh, you know, measure things out basically like this because I need a place to hang out. That is not what God is doing. God, in building the tabernacle, is telling the story of the Bible in a tent. My main point this morning is this. God wants to live with his people. God wants to live in his, with his people. Look again in verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell with my people. That I may dwell in their midst. Verse 22. There in this tabernacle, I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, et cetera, et cetera. God is building a place, and he's building it so that it will communicate something about himself to his people so that he can dwell with his people because God wants to dwell with his people. God wants to dwell with his people. And we're going to look through this passage together this morning. But, but before we do, before I've got kind of three points for us to look at together here this morning, I, I have a few visual representations of what this tabernacle would look like. And now we're not going to take time this morning to go through every single detail and every, we are going to name all of the, the parts of the furniture in the, uh, in the tabernacle. But in case you're not very familiar with this, Jay, can you just throw up that first slide for us there? Okay, so let, we're going to work from right to left. This would be a, a, an air, let's pretend like we're looking down from the sky. We're looking down onto the tabernacle. Um, you'll notice that the openings are on the right-hand side, so the opening to the courtyard and then the opening to the holy place, the little wavy line there, that it's facing the east. And, and in biblical times, east was like what north is to us East was to them. They oriented themselves, right? The word orient, we used to refer to the Eastern Asian countries. They would orient their map to the east. And so the fact that the tabernacle is facing east, that's like we would do something facing north. Their, their east was our north, but that's not exactly right um, either. I hope you understand. If I've been really uh, confusing, I'll explain it later. Um, and so as you, come into, as you come into the courtyard there, that first, that square represents the bronze altar. That's a place where bloody sacrifices were being offered. And then beyond that, to the left of that, the circle there is the bronze basin. This was a place for ceremonial cleansing to take place. And then you make your way into the actual, um, into the actual uh, uh, tabernacle or the, um, oh, the, the holy place is the first part of the, the tent structure there. And only priests were allowed in there. And in there, there's three pieces of furniture. 
Uh, on the, the top part there, there's what's called the table of showbread. On the bottom part there is the lampstand. And then in front of those two are the altar of incense. And then beyond that, there, there was another beautifully ordained veil there. And beyond that was the actual ark where we read this morning about the cherubim whose wings were outstretched. And there was a mercy seat. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter into that. But otherwise, no one was allowed into there. But this, this is the basic layout. Now, I've got a couple of photographs that one of the Israelites took a few thousand years ago um, of the, I'm just kidding about the photograph part, but here's a, here's a little more colorful representation there, and you can see those same items, uh, and then there's a zoom in, this third, this third, okay, you can see here the, the kind of the bottom right part of the photograph has the, the lampstand and the showbread and the altar of incense, and then there's a curtain, you know, this beautiful purple scarlet with, with uh, uh, a lot of ornamentation there, and then beyond that is the um, is the uh, Ark of the Covenant, okay? And so many of you are very familiar with this, and you could name all of those pieces, and then others of you, you might think, like, I don't get this. What's the point? Uh, looks like some kind of, you know, fancy religious place, and, you know, I guess God needed that. Well, let's walk through what God is doing here, because God wants to dwell with his people, and he can choose any way, shape, or form that he wants to do it, and for some reason, he's choosing this. And there are three, there are three things that are going to teach us about how God wants to dwell with his people. This morning, we're going to see that the names of this structure, the name of this facility teaches us. Secondly, we're going to see that the layout of the facility teaches us. And thirdly, we're going to see that the items, the furniture itself teaches us about God. Now, I'm really excited about this. I'm borderline giddy. I was talking through this with my kids at dinner last night, and I was just thinking, man, I can't wait to teach this. I love what I have learned from this. Listen, for a a, a great deal of my life, the Old Testament was kind of this foggy, fuzzy thing that like the old followers of Jesus used. And then like you got the New Testament. New is always better. And so like the New Testament was what we, and so there were kind of interesting stories about, you know, Noah and Samson and David and cool stories, fancy stuff like this, religious buildings. I don't know why God did that, but that we, but I don't need to bother with that anymore. Brothers and sisters, I, I actually don't even like the the, the words, the phrases Old Testament and New Testament because it makes us think that there's this big divided thing. God has given us a book. It tells one story and God's doing one thing throughout all of history. And here we're just seeing another chapter in the story of God wanting to live with his people. So first of all, the names teach us. Listen, the names that we use for our houses teach us something. Right? If I say, hey, do you want to come to my trailer for lunch? That communicates something. If I say, hey, do you want to come to my ranch for lunch? You have some, if I say, do you want to come to my mansion for lunch? Right? Like the word that I use to describe my domicile communicates to you something about my domicile. Nobody, you, uh, like I've never been invited to someone's domicile, right? Like, hey, do you want to come to my. Jerry, you want to come to my domicile after church? You would say yes, but that would be weird for me to use the word domicile. Okay? That's not in my notes. Here, we are introduced to this building that Exodus, the book of Exodus, and throughout our Christian experience, we have referred to as the tabernacle. Some of us have even known of churches that were called, you know, whatever, Baptist tabernacle. And they'll use the word tabernacle in the, in the title of, of their church. Well, ta- tabernacle... Um, simply means a place of dwelling. You know what it means? It means domicile. 
Yeah, sorry. That's what the word tabernacle means. It's, it, it means a place of dwelling. But listen, the fact that God is going to build a tabernacle, we're like, well, yeah, of course, we know the story. He's going to do that. But for the people of Israel, that's not a yeah, of course thing. God, help me to communicate this. They've just seen the awe-inspiring, terrible, wonderful display of who God is on the mountain of of Sinai. Thunder, lightning, fire. Moses is up and down and up and down like Matt talked about, right? Moses is a mountain climber. Um, They've seen God up there on the mountain. In fact, they've said, Moses, we don't want to go to him. You go to him. And, And Moses is the intermediary between the people of Israel and God, Come to a conclusion of that scene, and then God says, now listen, I want you to build something because I'm going to come and dwell with you. There are some people that are easy for us to have into our home as guests, and there are other people that if you know that so-and-so is coming to your house, it's like, okay, we got to clean Every, clean the closet. And you're like, are they going to go in the closet? It doesn't matter. Clean the closet. Like we, Everything's got to be perfect because so-and-so is coming over. And God is telling his people, his people who know him to be this unapproachable, mighty, terrible, wonderful God, and he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to dwell with you. The fact that God would come and dwell with his people is, an, is this amazingly awesome, wonderful thing for God's people. It's where God came to dwell with man. Now, we're going to be making constant references to how this points to Jesus. There, I, I was trying to figure out a way for, for me to preach all about the tabernacle and then say, like, and now that's fulfilled in Jesus, and there's just no way for me to, i got to do it the whole way through. i got to do it the whole way through. Brothers and sisters, God desires to dwell with people, and he does so in the tabernacle. He does it with his people in the tabernacle, and the tabernacle is merely a shadow. It's pointing us ahead to Jesus Christ who will come and dwell with his people. The Bible says this, the word became flesh in John chapter one, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The people that would have read the book of John when it was first written would have read Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us and they would have immediately and appropriately known, oh, you mean like the tent that was built back in Moses' day? It's always been God's plan to move toward his people and dwell among them. Your greatest need is the presence of God, is to be in the presence of God. That sounds kind of mystical and spiritual, and I'm just gonna, we're gonna walk through why that's not the case, but your greatest need is to live your life dwelling in the presence of God. That's why God came to dwell with us. It's called a tabernacle. It's also called a tent. Now, how many of you have gone tent camping? Okay. The only reason to go tent camping is if you are in pursuit of some wild game of some sort. You need to have a rifle. You need to have a gun. You need to have a camp. But, like, to do it for any other reason is foolish. There is no reason to pack up or to, rather, excuse me, to leave all of your stuff and all of the conveniences of your stuff, and like plumbing and running water. I'm going to avoid eye contact with the beavers right now. They're in some kind of weird tabernacle lifestyle right now. 
um, in the wilderness, wilderness wanderings. Um, yeah, uh, I think the last time that I camped for no good reason, again, there is a good reason to hunt, but the last time I camped for no good reason, um, uh, Angie was pregnant with Abraham. We were still living in California. We were with a bunch of other church people, and we were camping on the coast. I don't remember what town we were on, so it was beautiful. But then, like, like the wind is blowing all the time, and there's sand in everything, and everything's dirty, and, more, and you're cooking with smaller things, and you don't have the things that you want to have, and your hot sauces aren't available to you. Like, there's just a lot of reasons why tent camping is really inconvenient. Now, some of you have a home that you pull behind your truck that's bigger and nicer than the home you normally live in. That's not camping. That's cool. I will do that. That's not camping, okay? Camping is when you do this other foolish thing of living with, you know, a curtain of fabric around you and with dirt on everything. God's people are doing that thing. Camping is intense. You see what I did there? It's kind of like a double, double entendre. Camping is, yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, some of you are like, I don't get it. Just think about it. Camping is intense. Camping is. It's intense and it is in Tense. It's both. You got it, Brandis? Okay, okay, good. All right, all right. I'm going to carry on. God's people are camping in tents, and it is intense, and it's in the desert, and there is sand, and there is dirt, and they're living in this humble way that, that isn't pleasant. Like they, they're hoping that the rest of their eternity is not in this thing. And, and where does God come, and what does God do? Don't miss this. God comes to his people who are living in tents, and what does he build? Not an airtight mansion. He builds a tent. It's a nice one, but, but God comes, and he takes on himself the form of the people that he's coming to. Who does that remind you of? Right, this is where the Sunday school answer is the right answer. Jesus Jesus comes and he takes upon himself the form that we are living in. He takes upon himself flesh. He takes upon himself humanity. This is not an accident. I'm not being clever with the Bible right now. This is the point of the tabernacle. God is coming to dwell with his people in the way that they are living. And Jesus comes and he dwells with his people in the way that they are living. Our brains should be exploding right now. Philippians chapter 2 talks about Jesus being born in the likeness of men. John chapter 1, the word became flesh. I already quoted that one earlier. God comes to his people. God doesn't simply say, come to me. Jesus does say, come to me, all who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, come to me, after he has done what? He has already come to us. God comes to us first because God wants to dwell with his people. This tent is, a, is also called a tent of meeting. This place in the midst of God's people is a place where God sets the terms in order for people to come and meet with him. Now, they don't just saunter in. We're going to talk about this more in just a minute when we talk about the layout, right? People don't just, you, if you were an Israelite, you can't just go into the Holy of Holies. You can't just go into the holy place. In fact, you can't even just saunter in to the courtyard on a Tuesday afternoon. God has terms. 
But God wants to meet with his people, this tent of meeting. It's also called a sanctuary. A sanctuary is a holy place. One theologian says there's no, there's no barging into God's presence. The sanctuary stood as witness to the truth that although he was near, access to him was restricted. This sanctuary, it was restricted. We're going to talk about how you get through this restricted access. We need to see this. God wants to meet with his people in this holy place. Our greatest need is to be in the presence of God. That's, that's the ultimate goal for your existence, is to be in the presence of God. When we die, the goal is to be in the presence of God. The alternative, as one, uh, let's see, uh, is Nathaniel in here? Yes, oh, he's, he's asleep. As Nathaniel reminded me last night, they, they were at our house for dinner, and so I was preaching, I was doing my, sun, my Saturday evening pregame um, uh, before today, and uh, I talked about how that, you know, heaven is being, when we die, is the, the goal is to be in the presence of God for eternity, and he said, yeah, because if you don't, then you go to hell forever. And I was like, you know what, that wasn't in my notes, but it is now. Because, because the, our greatest need is to be in the presence of God forever. And the greatest failure, the worst thing that could happen to us is to be eternally separated from God forever. And listen, brothers and sisters, that, if, if that happens, that is your choice because God wants to dwell with you. He has moved toward you. He initiated the step. He saves and then invades. God wants to meet with his people I said that someone's house teaches us about the person, and the names of a house teaches us about a person. Trailer, ranch, mansion. God builds a tabernacle, tent, sanctuary. Those words teach us about God. He wants to meet with his people. Secondly, the layout of this house teaches us about God. Jay, can you put that first image back on the screen of the, the, the first or the second? Yeah, let's, we'll, do, we'll do that one. That one's just simplest to, to understand. Now, the layout of your home is more important than, and meaningful than you might think initially, right? Anybody, does anyone have a home where uh, when you come in the, the main front door of your home, that it come when you, when if I come and knock on the main front door of your house, knock knock knock, and you open the door, that it opens immediately into the master bedroom, master bathroom. No, right? Like, so you're like, okay, yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. The layout of our home is somewhat meaningful, right? We we give thought to you're going to walk into some kind of a living room or some kind of a hallway, and then you're going to have a kitchen off this way, and maybe a family room off this way, and some and the the bedrooms are the ones that are hardest to access, and the bathrooms of the bedrooms are the hardest, hardest thing, right? Like, we, we have an awareness that, like, we don't let everybody all the way into, like, you don't, you don't come in my closet just because I had you over for lunch, right? Like, the way our homes are laid out are meaningful and communicate, and the way God lays out his tabernacle is intentional and meaningful. It teaches us about him, First, the first thing we see about the layout is that it's actually in the middle of the nation of Israel. God dwells in the midst of his people. 
It's not like it, it's not still up on the mountain where like maybe you can climb up and get to him or not. No, God invades his people. God comes near to his people. An equal opportunity God. He's right there in the midst of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the, the and then as we begin to actually make our way in now into this uh, uh, this sacred place. Um, outside the tabernacle, but still within the courtyard there, the first thing we do when we walk in, what's the first thing that we hit? We can't walk past it. It's right there. It's an altar, a bronze altar. It's not a golden altar. It's not covered with gold. It's covered with bronze. But when, brothers and sisters, it, it, you know, even, Jay, show the other, the other uh, picture, like the photograph, or it's not a photograph, but the, yeah, 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 that one. Um, like this looks neat and clean and kind of cool, right? But there would have been blood everywhere. There would have been blood flicked all over the four corners of this altar. It would have been a constant reminder when you come in. I can't just come, like, I can't just come into the presence of God. There's, there's a blood sacrifice that has to be paid for me to be here in this place. The outer court is, is open to the skies and it's open to all the people. But there is a price that has to be paid as you move your way into the holy place. You, you come into the holy place then, and in and, uh, and the holy place, there's, um, there's a roof, right? That, but it's only accessible to the priests. Only the priests can go in there. And then, and then the, there's the holy of holies, and that's separated by a, a veil, and it's dark, and it's accessible only one time a year on the Day of Atonement, and never, never, ever without blood. Never without blood. You don't make it into the presence of God without a blood sacrifice. Again, your brain should be jumping ahead and exploding right now. Who has made a way for you to come into the presence of God? It's the Sunday school answer again. Jesus Christ. And how has he done it? How did he do it? With his blood. That's why the blood is so important to us. That's why we sing songs about blood. And if you had no concept of Christianity and you came in on a Sunday morning and you heard a bunch of people singing about blood, you would think that's weird. But when you understand that the only way to God is through a blood sacrifice and the only blood sacrifice that ever really and finally concluded the sacrificial system was the blood of Jesus Christ, well, now you know this is pointing ahead again. It's pointing ahead and listen, as you walk in, as you walk into that, the, from, from outside the courtyard and into the courtyard and into the holy place and then into the holy of holy places, the, the farther in you go, the more ornate things become, the more expensive things become. Bronze-covered altar, bronze-covered uh, uh, wash basin. You go inside, now everything's covered with gold. You go all the way inside, and that's where the most beautiful tapestries, the Holy of Holies, that's where the most beautiful embroidery, that's where all of the, the, the most, you know, I mean, everything is just absolutely um, valuable and worthy. The, and the more, the farther in you go, the more ornate and expensive things get, the more limited the access becomes. Because as one pastor says, the closer to God one approaches, the greater the requirements for holiness. But then what was the first thing you would see when you entered all the way into the Holy of Holies? What do you see there on top of the ark? What is that place called? The mercy seat. So we see the courtyard, holy, the holy place, holy, the holy of holies, holy, holy, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. 
And brothers and sisters, this is beautiful, and it is not by accident. You walk all the way into the holiest of holy places, and what do you see? Mercy. You find a place of mercy because God's dealing with people like you and me who are not holy. You haven't had a holy day ever. Your best day has enough sin to damn you to hell forever. All of us. So what do we need? We need mercy. And when you march all the way into the holiest place that Israel has in their experience to this point, the holiest place that they have, and the thing that is highlighted for the people of Israel is the mercy of God. There is blood and there is mercy. I said God's house teaches us about God and the layout of God's house teaches us about God. And the layout of his house shows us that he wants to meet with us, but we can't just march in. We aren't holy enough. They had to bring blood, but when you come with a blood sacrifice, you receive mercy. Do you see how this is not some random religious building that they just threw up because they needed a place to worship God? This place is God's idea to bless and teach his people. Thirdly, the furniture teaches us. The furniture in God's house teaches us about God. Now, again, if I go into your house, I can walk around and learn some stuff about you from looking at your furniture, right? I walk in and I see um, a, a big, long family table, right, and a big kitchen with lots of kitchen implements and well-stocked pantries and that sort of thing, and I'm going to know that big family meals, that that's an important thing to you, right? Or if I walk in and I see, you know, an enormous, you know, a 40-foot television screen, a jumbotron on one wall of your house, right, and on the other wall, People, I mean, everything's streaming now, but it used to be like we would have DVDs, right? And I would know, okay, that's important to you. Or if I walked into your house and on the walls were a doll sheep and a mountain goat and, and a caribou and, uh, and some, some mule deer and some, I would think, I'm in heaven, but I would know something about you. I mean, th this is true, right? So like five or six years ago when my kids were little, my kids knew the Seabert kids before I knew the Seberts. And Evangeline came home one day and said, Dad, you got to go over to this guy's house. He's got dead animals all over the place. And you know me well enough to know that I'm happy to meet people I've never met before. So I somehow got AJ's number and just called him. We'd never met. I was like, hey, uh, can I come to your house? And so I went to AJ's house and saw this incredible but, I, but you, right, I can walk into your house and I can learn some things about you. I can learn what's important. Hey, you have a lot of nice stuff, but it's really dusty. Or, you know, or, uh, or man, everything is meticulously put away. Or, man, every, it's, there's just piles of stuff everywhere. I learned stuff about you from the furniture in your house. And God wants us to learn some things about the furniture in his house. And as we walk in, that first thing that we see there is the altar. There, there are offerings, burnt offerings, grain offerings, sin offerings that are being offered up to God because the people of God need to make atonement for their sin. It's the first thing we see when we walk in. Then we see a laver, a wash basin, because we are unclean and we need to be cleaned before we can go into the presence of God. And then we walk into the holy place and here's a table of showbread and there's this bread that's kept fresh and there are these plates and bowls and everything's ready for a meal. Everything's ready for a covenant meal with God. 
And we're offering these things to God. But there's a meal that's, uh, there's a ready meal there to be had with God. And then there's a lampstand on the other side. This place, this, this lampstand never runs out of oil and it's an abiding light. And it, God is an abiding light to us. And then there's the, the altar of incense and it, and it has continual incense burning up to God, which are the prayers of God's people always ascending up to Him. And then. You go beyond the veil into the holy of holy places. And there we see the Ark of the Covenant with the testimonies that are tucked inside uh, the, 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 what will become the, the, um, the two tablets of stone and Moses' rod and some manna that are there inside there to give testimony to God. And the mercy seat is there. And all of these, all of these pieces of furniture are teaching us different things about God, important things about God. But here's something that I want to point out to you that's incredibly important for us to know about, because I want to think about all of these things together. We can spend time talking about each one of them individually, but let's think about them all together. As, as God gives instructions on how to build these things, the, the, through, throughout the, the, the decorations that God, the colors that God is using, the the, um, the images of pomegranates and almond blossoms and this candelabra that's shaped like a tree. Brothers and sisters, all of this is intended to remind God's people of a garden setting. They're walking through the desert. There's not all these blossoms and all of these beautiful things in the desert. God wants them to decorate the, the tabernacle with images of a garden. Do you, do you remember a garden where God dwelt with his people? in perfect union with his people, the Garden of Eden. Do you remember what heaven is described as? The new heavens and new earth, the, the final and ultimate Garden of Eden. God, this is not an accident. I'm not doing creative stuff with the Bible here this morning, brothers and sisters. God intends for us to look at this tabernacle and go, wow, it reminds me of a garden. It reminds me of a garden. God started this whole thing. The story started with God's people in God's place, in God's presence. And here in the middle of the desert is God's people in God's place with God's presence. And where is the ultimate timeline of history going? It's going to a new heavens and new earth, a new garden. One Bible scholar calls it, God is re-edening the world. I love that. He's re-edening the world. That's where we're going. So, So God's... God's house, God's tent is more than just, hey, guys, throw up one of those for me. You guys are living in those things, and I need a place to be as well, so why don't you build one for me? No. God does not have to dwell with his people. He wants to dwell with his people. And so he invades there. He re-edens the desert there with them. And he says, build me this tent. And there's, I'm going to teach you so much about me through this tent. Now, don't come in without blood. You're not going to survive without blood. But when you come in with blood, you can see that I am a holy God and that I am a merciful God. All of this reminds us of the garden. The images of pomegranates and almond blossoms and buds and branches have significant meaning to the people of Israel, and they must have significant meaning to us today. I said that God's house teaches us about God. The layout of God's house, the the names of God's house, the layout of God's house, The furniture of God's house teach us that God wants to dwell with his people and he's made a way for that to happen. Now, in conclusion, and this is going to be a longer conclusion. It's going to be like a 10-minute conclusion, okay? In conclusion, I want you to see that in this chapter of the story of the Bible, 
the entire story of the Bible is told. Let's just think through the entire story of the Bible for a second. God creates Adam and Eve, puts them in a garden, and there is God with us. Adam and Eve is the us. God with us in that garden. Adam and Eve sin. They're kicked out of the garden, right? And now sin separates them from God. And so blood sacrifice is pointing to an ultimate blood sacrifice are the ways in order for us, for Adam and Eve and the rest of God's people throughout time to gain their way back to God. There's a, there's a garden of Eden where God was with us. And then, and then next, and this is the next, where we are here in Exodus chapter 25, we, God begins to construct the tabernacle with his people. And the tabernacle is a place where God comes to his people and God dwells with us. God dwells with the nation of Israel. And we spent all morning already talking about this. The next place, who knows the next place that God will come and dwell with his people? It's a more permanent structure, though similar to this. It's the temple. That's right. God constructs, God has his people construct a temple. And in the temple, it's God with us, God with his people. And then after the temple, we do now break into the New Testament. And God sends away. God, God comes and dwells with us. What do we call that? Or who do we call that? Even, even before, yeah, yeah, even before the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Jesus. What does the word Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. Right? Like they would hear, they would hear the word Emmanuel and go, oh, like the tabernacle, God with us? And that's what that's what you need to think. When you hear words like God with us, you need to realize, you need to know this, brothers and sisters. You need to know that it has always been God's desire to dwell with his people. In the garden, in the tabernacle, in the temple, and then in the most perfect and ultimate way, in through through the Son, through He sends His Son Jesus Christ. And this is God tenting, tabernacling in human flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And not only did he dwell among us, but he gave his life. He gave his blood as that ultimate and final sin offering. It's why we no longer need an altar. Did you know that you don't need an altar to gain access to God anymore? It's, it's even why now I know some churches have a, a thing down front and it's often referred to as an altar. But you can't call that an altar. It's not an altar. Churches don't have altars. If you want to pray up here, these are steps. We're not altered. We don't have an altar. We don't offer sacrifices anymore. King Jesus came and shed his blood. He was the final sacrifice on the final altar. We don't do altars anymore. God wanted to dwell with his people. Turn, turn uh, real quickly to Hebrews chapter 10. I didn't write it in my notes, so I'm going to have to read it. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, the holy places, the, the, the reader of, the, of this book, the original readers would have immediately thought of the holy places, the holy place and the holy of holies. Since we have confidence to enter the holy of places, how? By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean. You, you don't understand Hebrews if you don't understand Exodus 25 through 40. 
our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he uh, who promised is faithful. Anyway, I could keep reading there. But Jesus is that final sacrifice that gains us access into the presence of God. He comes and dwells with his people in a garden. He dwells with his people in a tabernacle. He dwells with his people in a temple. He dwells with his people in the person of Jesus Christ. Don't put the next one up yet. The next way that God comes to dwell with his people is on the day of Pentecost, who, who comes to the people of God? The Holy Spirit. That's exactly right. It's not a true question. God comes in the Holy Spirit. God with us in the temple. God with us in the tabernacle. God with us in the temple. God with us in Christ. And we're tempted at this point to switch one word that makes a big difference and leads us in a wrong direction. We're tempted to say, when God sends the Holy Spirit, now it's God with me. And that there is an element of truth to that. You do have the Holy Spirit. But the point of God sending the Holy Spirit to us as individuals is that we together experience the goodness of the presence of God together. So my next point is not that God dwells with you, but that God dwells with us in the church. Do you want the closest thing you can have to heaven on earth? You're experiencing it right now. I'm sorry to be so disappointing. But theologically, that's absolutely true. Now, not just sitting here. I don't mean just sitting here listening to me on a Sunday morning. But what Matt has been encouraging us with for the last five or six weeks in Sunday school, that's what God wants his people to experience in order for them to know God with us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, our Bible say this, Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And we misunderstand this verse. First of all, we, we use a verse like this and we're like, uh, you shouldn't smoke. Don't smoke cigarettes because you're God's temple, right? So don't, you know, don't, don't eat too much or don't, you know, whatever the thing is. That's not the point of this verse. Maybe you shouldn't do those things, but that's not the point of this verse. In fact, the point of this verse isn't even simply that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. We, we need a text, I heard one pastor describe it this way, we need a Texas version of the Bible. If we had a TVB, Texas version of the Bible, it would read like this. Don't y'all know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all? Those pronouns in the original Greek are plural. Paul is not talking to an individual at Corinth. He's talking to the church at Corinth, and he's saying, you are God's temple, God with us. So don't think God with me, though that is true, but don't think God's with me, and like the Spirit of God is with me, and I'm just going to not do church, because it's messy, and there's annoying people there, and I'm always butting heads with someone. Y yep. Yep. It's going to be that way until the final Garden of Eden. But I'm just telling you, the closest thing that you're going to get to heaven on earth is this group of people, or, or one like it. 
That's really discouraging for some of us, right? I bring my sinfulness in here and create friction with others of you and vice versa. And yet, God in his wisdom has promised that his spirit will dwell with this tabernacle of people, this dwelling place for God. And then finally, God is bringing us to the new heaven and new earth. The, he's regardening, he's re-edening. The story of the Bible is God with us, God, God with us in the garden, God with us in eternity, and in between, God is continually moving toward his people because he wants to dwell with his people. The dwelling place of God teaches us. The names teach us. The layout teaches us. The, na- uh, the furniture teaches us. This is no random building. It's not merely a site for religious observances. It wasn't Moses and Aaron's idea to come up with some tent like theirs to make for God. It's another chapter in the single unified story of the entire Bible. God's people have been delivered and they're on their way to dwell with him and thankfully on their way, he dwells with them. God wants to dwell with his people. So what? So what? That's a lot of cool stuff and I hope that you know stuff about the tabernacle that you didn't know before this morning and I hope that it makes you excited for the rest of the book of Exodus. It's all this good. Don't get worried and confused about cubits, okay? which I think is from your elbow to the tip of your finger which means that, you know, we're going to have a lot of different cubits going on in here. So what? So, brothers and sisters, see the beauty of God in this tabernacle. See the love of God in this tabernacle. See the holiness of God in this tabernacle. See the mercy of God in this tabernacle. See the unity of the story of the Bible in this tabernacle. Respond to God's plan to bring you back to himself through shed blood. Remember, you aren't home yet. Be encouraged that God wants to dwell with his people. And then make sure that you are one of God's people through the blood of his son, the greatest sacrifice, the great atoning lamb, Jesus. Father, I pray that you would use your word in our hearts and minds to change us, to encourage us, to strengthen us. Thank you that you're a God who wants to dwell with your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask Josh to come and close us with a song.